See, I used to believe that women deserved respect. That you may get bored with winning. Hey, it's your old Uncle Phil with a little cabin sense. Masks. It looks eerily similar to the Spanish flute. I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't. You can't. Don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on. I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism. What's the name of the situation on the dogs? We are live from the free city of Kabul. Uh, welcome back to The Left is Dead. I am your host, James Carey, here with your other host. Hi. Hello. Hi. How you been, buddy? I'm good. I'm uh, in Kabul. As you You're say. enjoying this, right? Yeah. I have a... We're one, not at the airport, folks. Wonderful view from the American Embassy here. Yeah, we're the new ambassadors. I'm in the I'm in the airport Starbucks in Afghanistan. No, we're not at the airport. Oh, Don't yeah. lie to our audience. Yeah. Uh, we have the embassy, uh, China. We're ready to talk. I don't know. We got uh, something of a show for you tonight. We have a former congressional candidate, author, a bunch of other things you'll hear in our introduction. Um, Haven McBarish recently wrote a book on some electoral reforms. I'm not going to lie to you folks, it's pre-recorded, so we know what happened. Oh, Jake, you got anything to say before we run into this? Um, I mean, not particularly on, on our guests. I'm not familiar with his work, but he seems, uh, he seems knowledgeable and, and uh, interesting, uh, so I'm glad we have him. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I'm, I'm ready to just cruise right on into this. All right, well, let's get on into the interview, and we will talk to you guys on the other side. I am Jim Carrey, back with my co-host, Jake Anderson. How's it going, bud? Good. No good. Good. good, good. Always good. So, we are here tonight with our guest, Haven McBarish. He is an attorney, political strategy, and a former congressional candidate from California who has, um, he runs a, well, he, do you currently run the nonprofit Common Sense Democracy still? I, I do. I've, okay. I've handed it over to a couple volunteers. Uh, so I'm actually, I'm more of a farmer right now um, hmm. than uh, doing that nonprofit. Although okay. I, my farm is part of the non, a different nonprofit now. Right. Which we will get into because he also uh, when the nonprofit Five Journeys, which he started, um, which is a new project in California. Uh, he previously hosted the Your Daily Trump podcast and has worked as an immigration attorney an employment attorney, and he's been a union leader. Um, and like I said, he's a congressional candidate from California. We are going to talk about his latest book, The Last Chance to Save American Democracy. Um, Republicans will permanently take power in the 2022 to 2024 elections unless Democrats follow this plan. So, uh, Haven, I guess uh, first tell us a bit about yourself, your congressional uh, candidacy and what happened and, you know, a little bit of background about you, which you start your book with. Yeah, great. So <clears throat> I um, decided to run for Congress, um, having been involved in politics for a few decades, run a bunch of city council and school board elections um, as campaign manager, was the former head of a few unions for about 10 years. And uh, we really got involved in politics as part of our um, drive to uh, conscientize our uh, members. I thought I knew politics. Um, and uh, I actually had been looking at what the Republicans had been doing since 2010 and saw some patterns that didn't seem to be covered much. Uh, I was appalled when 
Um, Republicans won the congressional elections in 2010, and everybody blamed Obamacare as if it were this, you know, socialist, scary um, uh, healthcare system. When in fact, it was a fairly popular, um, you know, privatized uh, healthcare system that would have fit in with the Reason Foundation or any of the other kind of right-wing think groups who contributed to the intellectual scaffolding of the that healthcare law. Uh, and in fact, what I discovered was that just a few weeks prior to the election, the Democrats were winning in the generic congressional race by 10, 12, 14 points in every poll. But then something happened in the last month, month or two. But while that election occurred, the Gallup polling was still showing Obamacare was more popular than it wasn't. So the explanation of um, Republicans winning because they campaigned against Obamacare didn't jive with the reality of what happened, um, uh, certainly in the polling. And so in that kind of dive, that's when I first really came across what occurred in the immediate aftermath of um, uh, Citizens United. You know, everybody knows, I'm sure every listener here knows mm -hmm. about Citizens United, but the untold story about Citizens United was what happened just a few months after the Supreme Court made that decision. And that was, it, people sometimes forget the timing, it was a few months before the 2010 election, I think it was maybe eight months before. And all of a sudden, there was this unprecedented amount of money that just created this avalanche of you know horrible mail and you know hundreds of volunteers in various congressional and more importantly state legislative districts that first of all the democrats had no clue it was coming and they had nothing to respond with or uh, fight against it with but even the republicans didn't know this was not a you know a massive conspiracy amongst every uh, Republican congressional or state legislative uh, candidate. Most of them didn't had no idea where the money was coming from. It was a very small group of extremely uh, powerful and wealthy Republican billionaires who concocted the the plot and were able to um, uh, basically catch the Democrats unawares. And it was that avalanche of money in some districts, a 20 to one spending advantage over the Democrats that flipped the seats in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, all of these states that now, like we always thought they were kind of blue, they were kind of purple, but now they're solidly Republican, at least in the legislatures. And it also flipped the House of Representatives. And so that was kind of my, like when I, you know, investigated that and understood that, then I started seeing, all right, well, what was the next step? The next step was passing a whole bunch of voter suppression laws. Um, of course, you know, if you are elected only because you caught the other side unawares and you had this money advantage, then what, what's your next step? Well, how do you keep that majority when you don't have majority support except for the fluke? Excuse me. The next step was actually gerrymandering because that was right when the 2010 census mm -hmm. came. And so they were able to gerrymander themselves. And then it was voter suppression. And then as I analyzed it, I realized there was really this fourth weapon of the what I call diversionary propaganda, which was the subject of my podcast. Um, the uh, Your Daily Trump was all about the things that were happening in politics that were not being covered by the mainstream media because the mainstream media was so obsessed of the the grossities of um, of Trump and you know oh who did he insult now who did he call fat who you know what crazy thing did he do while they were dismantling democracy in the United States and no one was covering that part of it. So every week, uh, say it was daily Trump, I started daily, but I eventually went to weekly. Um, and it was covering basically all the stuff that was happening at the state level, sometimes at the local level, and sometimes at the national level to explain you know, how the Republicans who basically should be a the you know semi-permanent minority in the United States, how they continue to govern a bunch of states where they have less support than Democrats, and certainly on the national stage. And um, yeah, so that's so I decided because of that, I said, all right, well, look, 
we need to have people in Congress who understand this. No Democrats are talking about this. Certainly in 2016, they weren't. And further, we need to impeach Trump because if, you know, for the various crimes he did. But my biggest concern was that if he were to be reelected, that there would be no turning back, that, you know, though he seemed like a bubbling idiot and he was surrounded by very incompetent operatives, um, eventually they would bring in the A-team. They would make up with the Koch brothers. Um, Betsy DeVos would bring her troops and strategists in, and they would figure out what they needed to do to permanently dismantle democracy. So I decided to run for Congress, mostly on an impeach Trump platform, as well as you know, explain to people these weapons that were being used. I did really well in the debates. People really resonated with my message. And then when I would get to talk with the activists and the unions, which I just assumed I would have a great shot at getting their support since there was no Democratic incumbent and the main Democrat was a former corporate attorney who fought against unions. Um, and But all they cared about was how much money I had raised, what my network was, and it just became so disheartening, I withdrew. Um, and I withdrew after a conversation I relayed in the book where my fundraiser, who I had hired actually from the Democratic Party, big mistake, um, mm-hmm. I tried to get like some of the more kind of Sanders people and move on and and just I couldn't I just didn't have the connections and I was on a short time frame so I got the guy who used to run the fundraising room for House uh, Democrats and he explained to me when I told him look man I think I could do this fundraising for another 10 months but this is killing me he's like Scott what are you talking about 10 months you this is all you do once you're elected Monday through Thursday you with the other House Democrats sit in a room and you dial, you will have a um, call manager next to you. You will be in a cubby and you will be cold calling people eight to 10 hours a day, 12 hours if you have leadership ambitions. And then on the weekends, you will either go to your own fundraising parties in your district or you will support the fundraising parties of other people or the party here in DC. And that's your job. And, you know, I I could not believe how naive I was. It was just, it was disheartening and I felt like a fool and I didn't want any piece of it. Like the moment winning the election seemed worse than not winning the election, I knew I had to withdraw. So I just withdrew. Yeah, well, the Democrats have definitely um, turned on the fundraising machine in a similar way. Um, Absolutely. The, you know, a lot of like, and they play both sides, but like a lot of Silicon Valley goes to Democrats now, which is a ton of money. And yeah, this election, the 2020 election itself was over what, $14 billion, almost, you know, double what the 2016 was. So, um, and that was like almost over six and a half billion for the presidential election alone. So yeah, the spending is definitely, and I live in Michigan too, where again, what's supposed to be, you know, thought of as a blue state, but also a Democrat governor went for Biden. The state Senate is completely Republican controlled. Yeah. You know, and, and look at that. They went for Biden. They went for Whitmer. They, their senators like Peters are Democrats. Yeah. Because you can't gerrymander statewide seats. Right. But when you can gerrymander, then even the, and Michigan was one of the examples I used in my book. And I, I might have the percentages a little bit off, but as I recall, Democrats receive approximately 58% of the statewide vote for the legislative seats, and they get approximately 46% of the seats. So, you know, they win by 16 points, but they are still in the minority. That's where the state of our democracy right now in every red state in the country. And, you know, Democrats don't necessarily do the same thing. And I I have an explanation for that. it's not just incompetence. I mean, they did do it in Maryland, certainly, but like in California, they have, you know, uh, kind of councils, nonpartisan councils that determine the, the seats uh, and the boundaries. But on the whole, the Democrats have been uh, have become the party uh, that defends American exceptionalism, that we are the greatest country in the world. We have the greatest democracy in the world. 
that's the stance the Democrats take. Republicans have just like given up. They're like, hey, democracy hasn't worked. We need someone to cut through this bullshit and, you know, deliver on the protections we need because we're, you know, us white Christians are, are being oppressed or whatever the hell their narrative is from one moment to the next. And so they've pretty much given up on democracy. And I, it's, I don't know if it's even still on their platform. You know, I'm, I'm being semi facetious. But unfortunately, Democrats are, have now taken the Democrats are the, the, the Reagan Republicans of the 80s. Oh, yeah, um, that's that's what they have become. I mean, Obama said so himself when he wrote to David Brooks to make sure he wasn't concerned about anything, you know, and um, I, I think a moment where I like first doubted the Hillary campaign, like ability to win was the America's already great idea where you know, they, it was like, well, none of these things in the past have happened. And if they did yeah. happen, it wasn't our fault, you know, <laughs> and it's sort of this, they kind of like wiped out all the, they they really did like kind of wash over everybody's concerns and just kind of try and cover that up and yeah. act as if they weren't there. I think that's the yeah. issue with them. And yeah, you're right. That's the American exceptionalism aspect of the party now. Yeah, uh, they they basically reran Ronald Reagan's campaign from '80, um, and uh, are still shocked that it didn't work in 2016. And in 2020, <laughs> I think they have the you know the absolute wrong analysis. In 2020, it, yeah, you know, they they didn't win on their campaign. They won no. because enough people were just appalled by Trump um, and somewhat by the Republicans, but uh, they got lucky in 2020. I mean, they really, really got lucky. I mean, with the pandemic, do you think, you know, was the pandemic, you think the thing that pushed it over the edge for them in the end? It might have, right? I mean, but the pandemic could have gone either way. So it wasn't so much the pandemic, it was Trump's response to the pandemic, which was there is no pandemic, right? Like we're just, us virile males, we are not going to uh, have to worry about this. Let's, you know, let's protect our businesses and we're going to be fine. And um, unfortunately uh, for Trump, um, that message was just belied by the you know hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, perhaps had the pandemic started a little later, or had he just showed any emotional th- sympathy for the families who were losing people to COVID, uh, he would have won. Uh, but yeah, I think to to some extent you could say that Biden won because of uh, Trump's mishandling of the pandemic. Right. So, all right, Jake, did you have something? Yeah, well, I mean, I I agree with your point, which, uh, well, I mean, there was a lot of points, but I mean, I agree with your analysis that, you know, there's kind of an existential crisis in terms of, you know, as much as much as as people on the left want to hate on on the Democratic Party, the DNC and all that and Obamacare, and you're absolutely right, that was basically a, a a gift to the corporatocracy and, and not any kind of actual actual dalliance with socialism, uh, which is just an absurd accusation about it. it. You know, as much as the left, as much as the left is kind of lost right now in terms of messaging, particularly yeah. mainstream Democrats, I think you're right to identify that. I mean, we really do have a very real existential crisis with where the right wing of this country is going. And I, and I, I think too often, um, it, because it's so easy to criticize the DNC and Biden and, and, and the Democrats, um, and, and, and ironically, it's very easy to criticize Trump too, but there's, it's kind of horrifying where the real right wing of this country is headed, which as you correctly pointed out, is just straight into the arms of uh, authoritarianism. Uh, and it, it, it seems like almost trendy now to, to you know, w- when you get uh, ostensibly left-wing people like, for example, a Glenn Greenwald or a Jimmy Dore, are these people who are driving a very significant number of alienated leftists who are at this point almost kind of adopting right-wing manifestos at this point under the illusion that this is some kind of, of, of populism. Um, like we really do have a really weird schism right now that seems to be supporting a push towards autocracy. Um, and, and you seem to think, especially if Trump is reelected, that this is gonna get worse. I mean, do you, do you see this, uh, you know, I'm often 
criticized by you know people saying I'm being hysterical or that I'm not I'm 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 not you know diagnosing the correct issue but I I, I think we're headed towards a you know of extreme right-wing autocracy right now is that what you think as well obviously yeah I do and in fact I'll even give you the flavor of the autocracy um, and it is all you'd need to do is look at 1979 Tehran Iran in 1979 you had a group of righteous students who were um, protesting against a dictator supported by the United States. I mean, these were students who would be comfortable at Antifa rallies, who um, Iran had a lot of very modern thought. So these were people who would upheld women's rights as strongly as you or I would. Um, and they were joined by religious zealotries who wanted a fascistic version of um, uh, um, uh, Shiite um, uh, Islam to rule the land. And they were joined by a couple other uh, tribal uh, groups who didn't like the short end of the stick that they, they were getting. So all of these groups formed the revolution. But once the revolution succeeded, the groups with the guns were the religious people. And, and not just the guns, the group with the fervor were the religious people, the kind of the pro-democracy students all of a sudden found that they were now the enemy of the state and they were jailed and many times executed and a lot of them were disappeared. I mean, we're talking thousands of students who helped um, uh, Iran free itself of the dictatorship, then became victims of the new dictatorship. And I see that happening all of these, you know, kind of activists on the right who who I think sincerely believe and in, in, in a diluted manner, of course, that democracy is at stake and, you know, our way of living is threatened and, you know, they can't quite pin down what's happening, but they, they have this sense. Well, what's going to happen is that once the right wing takes over, and I think the right wing takeover will be complete in 2024, once they take over now. It, there's no conversations with the left. There's no conversations with moderates. I mean, even, you know, Kucinich will is obviously an outcast in the Republican Party. And if you could even call him moderate to begin with, but certainly compared to the rest of the Republicans, he is. And those people are going to be set aside. And the group with the greatest fervor are going to be the white Christian identity nationalists, or that's probably one too many words, the white Christian nationalists. And that's, the replay that we saw in Tehran. And, you know, I don't think there's going to be mass executions. I really don't. Um, I think there is a level, uh, I think democracy has bred in um, a level of decency, but I think it's going to be still uh, draconian laws uh, that are going to target um, ethnic minorities, that are going to target the rights of women, certainly LGBTQ, um, yeah, progressives, union leaders. I mean, it's going to be the same groups that Iran hate, uh, currently hates, the same groups that Nazi Germany currently hates, I mean, not currently, but hated in the, in the 40s. Um, and the dissenters are not going to be treated well. Um, I don't know to what extent and exactly how they're going to silence them. You know, is it just going to be like deplatform? Is that all? Like, is that all that's going to happen? We're all going to lose our Twitter followers? Or is it going to be more serious and there's going to be lawsuits and we're going to be, you know, sued because we have criticized a certain thing that you know, like like how um, the Texas Ranchers Association sued o Oprah Winfrey. Now they lost, but it, in the future the laws could be changed so that they would win against Oprah Winfrey. You know, um, when she uh, criticized beef uh, or whatever the heck she did, and so we may have stuff like that where you are sued um, because you have just said that the the um, Baptist Church is producing Nazis. Right. And now you're sued because even though you could probably prove it to be true, it doesn't matter anymore. The law is no longer on your side. And so I think that's what's going to be in our future is going to be a minority of white Christians who are going to have a disproportionate impact on the legislative um, uh, rules of our country and of, you know, half the states, if not more. Well, I think part of the danger here is um, as far as Iran goes, I mean, the CIA you know, played a role as always in the revolution and in 83 under Reagan gave the 
you know, Iranian revolution, the names of communists to mass execute. So we played our part in that. But here, I think the issue is, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I think it's this fracturing of reality and that's really sped up in the last four years where there is no objective reality anymore, right? There's no unifying truth to literally anything. You can go online and craft a reality completely to your liking. I mean, Jake and I have talked to QAnon people, but it's their beliefs vary from person to person. Not one of them would believe the same thing completely. You know, and do you think that's what's, I mean, do you see this as a threat? The fact that just this idea of like any type of shared like social contract or like understanding of how things work do you think that's like one of the large dangers to us at this point yeah you know it's funny because had i been alive in the 50s or i was alive in the late 60s but um not very politically active at one years of age um uh, if you had asked me back then i would have said no we need to like crush this conformist you know sense of reality because it's masking the brutality um, of the U.S. government towards Vietnam or, you know, um, whatever the issues were at the time, uh, civil rights, certainly. And and so I'm not so sure I long for the days of a consensus reality in that respect. Um, but the fourth weapon that I mentioned in the book, I, I call diversionary propaganda. And to me, I, I feel that the reason it was started, and it may have morphed, um, but the reason it was started was Republicans were going to dismantle um, uh, a democracy. That was the, pl- and, and by the way, I'm I'm too broad a brush. It wasn't Republicans wanting to dismantle democracy in 2010. It was a small group of incredibly rich and powerful people wanting to dismantle democracy in 2010. And the Republican Party was just the easy pickings to um, uh, for them, their tool to be able to do that. And so they instituted you know, with Fox News um, uh, mostly, um, they instituted the diversionary propaganda to shield themselves from the very acts that they were doing. And so they would tell you, you know, uh, basically anytime the Republicans attack Democrats, generally it's because they're doing exactly what the Democrats are claiming, uh, they're claiming that the Democrats are doing. So they're shielding themselves by pointing the finger at the party that's actually not doing what they themselves are doing. And so I think that's where the break with reality started. And then perhaps not surprisingly, it has morphed and grown into this like psychotic idea of QAnon or the boogaloos who I find to be, you know, I mean, they're intriguing in one sense because they're anti-authoritarian, but on the other sense, it just seems like they're completely pro-authoritarian or um, and, and would love nothing but to rule by force. And so I, I think you just have now this, I, this whirlpool of different uh, motivations to obscure the truth. But I think the kernel started with just, we want to have a smoke screen on what we're doing. So like we want to invade um, uh, Vietnam. So what do we do? We have um, the um, uh, we have the Gulf of Tonkin incident, right? It's just this Gulf screen. It didn't happen, or if it happened, we did it ourselves, but we're trying to um, justify why we are now uh, escalating our conflict in Vietnam. And I think that's just the, the playbook they followed. And now it's just gone, it's just kind of gone insane. And I think that's partly because of social media, you know, and how, you know, certain algorithms are, are kind of like, the, the more outrageous you are, the more you're rewarded. Um, and so then people find this outrageous stuff, and they're just surrounded by it. And it's hard for them to claw back and listen to MSNBC or, or God or even Fox News, which is kind of halfway sane compared to some of the other right. stuff that's out there. Yeah, well, I would say even the left doesn't share a consensus on much either, you know, it's a broad oh, we definitely strokes don't. of the left. And then, yeah. you know, um, yeah, social media is definitely part of it. And then, I, you know, coming on the heels of the Afghanistan withdrawal this past week, um, I think that's another large part of it too with the the generation coming up it's just the idea of um american empire as far as you know vietnam ended the draft which changed you know the 
the military changing to a volunteer army was a good idea because now yeah. it was in the background, right? But after 20 years and multiple objectives in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then the war expanding into multiple other countries, um, yeah. I think that was a huge part of like this breaking of reality for people too. And then of course, 2008, you know, that's a whole story for another time. But, um, and I think, you know, again, Hillary wasn't offering much in 2016 and Trump didn't really understand what he was offering and didn't really care. I mean, no, rage was enough. Yeah. He was a man who threatened the Saudis on Twitter and then was their best friend when he was in office, you know? And uh, do, do you think that I would say like, Sarah Palin probably unleashed this wave, but do you think he was an unintended consequence from uh, what completely. the GOP had done? A hundred percent. The people who were um, implementing these four weapons, um, uh, they were not doing so so that a Trump could be elected. They were doing so that a Jeb Bush could be elected. Controllable, moderate, you know, you kind of want to believe him. You kind of want to think he's got your best uh, interests at heart. Um, you know, maybe a Ted Cruz if they really wanted to try to get, sh you know, bad shit done fast. Um, but Trump was, <laughs> he was completely unexpected. They didn't know how to control him. I mean, look, even when he got elected and I heard his speech election night when he was like, oh shit, I won. Um, and he was very gracious to Hillary Clinton. In that moment, even I, I mean, I had worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, you know, reluctantly, uh, but I saw the threat of Trump. So I, you know, lesser of the two evils, not always a strategy I pick, but certainly against Trump. I, I you know, I would have worked for, you know, George, well, I probably wouldn't have worked for George Bush, but <laughs> certainly I would have worked for Jeb Bush. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, when I heard that speech, for a moment, I thought, shit, this guy is such a wild card. He might end up like, pulling us out of Afghanistan and pulling us out of Iraq. And he might be like, you know, fuck oil. You know, we're going to just produce all our energy here at home. And if that means solar, then that's fine. Like, I didn't know what, where he would go. And so did Republicans want a wild card like that? No. Did they learn to control him? Yes. To, to, they, they controlled his policy. Oh, yeah. They never controlled, you know, like his mouth or his, his, you know, mind, but they certainly controlled the policy. They, you know, Mitch McConnell is, is, you know, a genius. I mean, he, he really should be recognized as one of the most important political um, operatives of the, uh, of certainly the 21st century. Oh, the untold stories that at the courts under Trump, you know? Yeah. Right. But, right. And that was McConnell's yeah, goal. That was McConnell's goal. And, and he saw it. I mean, and that's why, like in, in my book, you know, that is, one of the things that I, you know, is I think it was number two or number three for in terms of the solution. Um, and it wasn't like pack the court because that wouldn't work, but it was to make our courts more logical and which would have given Biden a majority in his first term, a majority that would have been a lot more temporary than the current majority so that in 2024, the next president had it been a Republican, would have been able to flip it and been given a majority as well. So it was, a, it was kind of, I, I was expanding it to 15 seats um, and it was going to be a geographical seat uh, based on the circuit court. So we would expand the circuit courts to 15 and each judge or each justice, you'd have to have one from each of the 15 seats uh, that would be slowly you know, rolled in um, as people retire or die. And that there was an 18 year term limit for the justices um, and so, uh, and that you would only, you would get two automatic first year and third year of your presidential term, not automatic, but the, the Senate would at least have to bring it up for a vote. So every president would appoint four justices and that, you know, within about 12 years, it would just, it, there would be that many retiring every term. So it would have more or less, um, uh, remained at 15, sometimes down to 14, um, or in sometimes a, a president might have only got three, but identified that as being, you know, the, 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 thing, the second or third most important thing that we do, because without that, you know, none of the, none of the stuff, like, even if it were to pass the Senate and nothing's going to pass the Senate. And that I predicted that in my book, in my book, I actually had a section on what would happen if there were a tie or if the Republicans won by one, because I saw that as a realistic possibility because Democrats just, they can't win elections. Um, even the, the gimmies. And so uh, I called it plan B. Um, but at, at any rate, 
Um, I saw if the Republicans uh, were able to main control, uh, maintain control of the Supreme Court, that whatever finally passed the Senate would just would just be declared unconstitutional. The, the Republican uh, Supreme Court is the single most effective Republican operation in our country right now. And so nothing is going to get by them. No piece of legislation, progressive legislation is going to get by them at all. And stop. Uh, do you think, um, I mean, you talked about this kind of uh, white nationalist identity, which I think is our, our anxiety over um, pluralism in America, multiculturalism, which has been, you know, bubbling over for a while. Um, this kind of mainstream acceptance of it, it would have been kind of incomprehensible 10 years ago, but yeah, it's true. You think to a, a certain extent, um, this new, I mean, it's kind of ironic in one way because they're always bitching about identity politics. On the <laughs> so and, true. And in yep. reality, you know, as, um, as I'm sure you're laughing about, I mean, it, the, 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 the scared identity of white Christo fascist, you know, white nationalism has definitely been a, a driving force of, of MAGA and whatnot. I yeah. mean, you, to a certain point, uh, they've realized, I mean, like you said, McConnell is, is I, I agree, I think McConnell is, is, is I mean, he's sinister, but he's, he's very, very intelligent and strategic. Yeah. And they've, they've known for a while that um, the skewing demographics, uh, just through population change, through just through natural evolution of consciousness and uh, new generations taking over, um, the electorate is is going to be shifting more toward the left naturally. Right. Yes. Uh, and so, do you think, to a certain extent, uh, a lot of this is it's like simultaneous, like accidental rage, but also strategic rage, because the only weapon they're going to have against um, this kind of of new multicultural majority. The only weapon they're going to have against that is um, pushing this conspiracy of a deep state, uh, a liberal deep state that's taking over the white Christian national identity. You know, and and so they really do kind of have to double down on this at, at, at this point. And it's it's obviously very dangerous because it's pushing, you know, uh, the the vast majority of uh, radical extremism that has resulted in death has has been almost entirely right wing over the past twenty years. Oh I mean, yeah, absolutely. One leftist extremist that, that killed someone, but th this idea of Antifa as a killing force is just ridiculous. The vast majority of killings is right wing extremists, so they're driving this right wing extremism. At the same time, they really have no choice but to push this narrative and and. You know, the the end result, of course, is you're going to have the, the the second mainstream political party is basically going to be they're pushing radical terrorism at this point. I mean, yeah, you, you made a point that I thought was interesting, which is that you think at some point cooler hip heads will prevail or that we have a, we have a certain kind of shared consensus reality of decency that will stop outright fascism from taking root in America. But. I mean, do you think that that is a kind of slow boiling pot that can change over time? Yeah, I, you know, part of part of the reason why um, I believe we won't have a you know a uber violent fascist takeover, we're going to have a fascist takeover. It just won't be uber violent, is because corporate America is just too strong and their interest is to sell to Republicans and Democrats. We're going to be saved by the very genesis of this problem. Um, they, they're not looking for fascism. They just don't, they just don't want to pay taxes. They just don't want regulations. They don't want to pay their workers much when they make profits. They don't want to share it with the treasury. I mean, that's the main motivation for all of this stuff uh, in the beginning in the beginning. 
That's what I believe the plan was implemented by the Kochs, by the DeVosses of the world, uh, by the Ad Sheldon Adelsons of the world. It was just to save money and consolidate their wealth and power so they could live lives of imaginary wealth like princes and princesses of the Middle Ages. That was their kind of fantasy, unencumbered by, you know, taxes and regulations and all the stuff that, you know, just is beneath them. And they unleashed, you know, in, in their in their kind of drive to uh, make their their pet little Republican Party the majoritarian party, or I should say the, the permanent majority, um, definitely not majoritarian, it's a minority party, um, uh, but make them the permanent majority, they ended up unleashing some forces that maybe some of them are sympathetic to, I, I really don't know, um, but that they don't have control over, you know. Now, you've got people like DeVos, who it's been shown has, you know, contributed to a lot of the um, uh, violent uh, protests in uh, by the state militias uh, back in 2020. Um, and, but even then, I think it was uh, mostly having to do with uh, just trying to win the electoral race. Uh, I think the win for the rich people uh, is just lower taxes and less regulation. Um, and so I and I think that they they will recoil if all of a sudden, you know, the Boogaloo brothers or whatever boys, whatever they're called nowadays. Um, but the right wing militias start, you know, significant executions in the streets. I, I don't think they're going to support that because, you know, uh, as we learn from Saul Linsky, you know, the the it's not the action that's important. It's the reaction to the action. And so I think they're going to be more afraid of what that will spawn on the left and even amongst decent, moderate people. So they're not going to support that and they don't need to support it. All they need to do is have the illusion of democracy like they do in Russia. You know, Putin has won every election. It's not like he is a the permanent dictator. He wins elections, but there really is no real, you know, uh, uh, choice on the matter. You know, the, the the opposition is harassed. They're jailed. They're not allowed to run, and that's the type of fascism we're going to see in the United States. It's going to be a soft fascism. We're going to continue to have elections. The Democrats will gamely try to win. You know, the left. You know, left winging uh, billionaires will pump money into the Democrats, but they're just going to keep losing. And every once in a while, maybe they'll win like they have temporarily won the House of Representatives. Um, and but they're going to lose it in you know a year and a half. Of course, the wild card is Trump. I mean, Trump has the ability um, to snatch uh, um, defeat from the jaws of victory. You know, he's just such He's just so bad at what he tries to do, and he has no allegiance to the Republicans that, like in Georgia, you know, I honestly think that he was trying to throw the race against the Republicans in Georgia because he didn't want Republicans to win in Georgia if he lost in Georgia. They all had to lose for it all to make sense in his mind. So that's what the that's the nightmare for the Republicans, but Trump won't be around that long. He's not going to keep and, and I've never monkey wrench. Someone make that point before that, that that it could actually be the corporatocracy that ends up saving us from full blown. They're causing it, and they're just gonna they're gonna make it a soft fascism. That yeah. that's the difference. Right. Trump doesn't have allegiance to anything except his own ego, and that's correct. Makes him so dangerous, and that's why. Yeah. Normally, I would agree with you that I don't think America could become a full blown fascism. For example, under something like a a Cruz or a Jeb Bush, but there's something about Trump that brings out this just incredibly irrational instability in the more ex already extreme groups of America. And I, so yeah. I, I agree with you. I think him getting reelected in 2024 takes everything off the table. Yeah, but I don't think he will be. And and, and I think just part of it is health issues. I think they're, I don't know if I can, if, if, if excuse my language, if um, attorney generals or district attorneys finally get off their ass and, and have the courage to charge him. I think, I don't think he is going to be the president in 2024. I think there's a better shot his son <laughs> would be the president. But, yeah. you know, but they don't, I mean, the, the takeover of American democracy does not need Trump. You know, to end American democracy, we just need any Republican patsy to be president. 
and it's done. And so I think that um, there's a very good shot. He won't even be a candidate at that point. I mean, he will be fairly old. And look, Biden looks like he's actually in good physical shape. Trump does not. And I've had grandparents who were not in great shape and they die. I mean, you just you, you don't survive at that level of vitriol and Big Mac and Diet Coke or whatever it is his diet is and anger and be able to keep going for, you know, between now and 2024. At least that's my hope. Um, but, you know, ultimately what I am kind of my activism has, I've shut off almost all of my activism other than, you know, the, the five journeys and the farm, um, except for pro-democracy. Like, I think what the left has to understand right now, because you were saying about the messaging on the left that we're kind of chaotic as well, which I agree with, but right now, like, we're fighting for stuff that is absolutely impossible. There is nothing on the agenda of the left that has any shot of making it into law. I mean, if, if we're trying to change culture and trying to change minds and hearts, that's that's fine and that's good and that's necessary. But the idea that we're going to have a better healthcare system or we're going to have more tech, uh, a better tech, uh, tax system or we're even going to hold police accountable, all of that stuff is just absolute bullshit. Nothing of that is going to pass and get through the Senate and the Supreme Court. None of it. And so we should all be reduced to the one fundamental issue that combines all of us. Well, I'm not sure about you, Jake, <laughs> or, or maybe it was, but uh, which is democracy. And, you know, for me, representative democracy, that's one stage of democracy. You know, if you take like Marx's idea that, you know, you, you've got these different stages towards communism, you know, um, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not interested in communism. I am interested in democracy. Representative democracy is the first stage. Then the next stage might be direct democracy. And hell, for all I know, maybe the next stage after that is um, uh, anarchy. I, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not that smart. I can't kind of predict where the arc of democracy, but I do know that right now that should be the only thing we are working on because nothing else is going to get passed. And without democracy, you know, forget about every issue we care about for the next 20 years. Yeah. And okay. So while we're on it, then I, you brought it up. You want to talk about what uh, five journeys is? Well, we uh, got a couple minutes left here. Yeah, no problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I, it's funny, I'm back to exactly where I was at 19 years of age. I lived in New Zealand um, at 19 and 20, and um, I actually was one of the founding members of the Green Party of Aotearoa, um, which has held the balance of power for like half the time since I left. And, but while I, and I ran a, that was the first campaign I ran for a guy named Stephen Rainbow. I did the field campaign for him in Wellington. His actual name was Rainbow and he was the Green Party candidate. It couldn't have been more perfect. Um, but when I went through that, that experience, contrasted with the experiences I was having in the forest of New Zealand, and they have some deep untouched forests there. Something came to me that I just thought, you know what, we're never going to, fix this stuff through politics. Politics is not going to be what changes people. It has to be a more spiritual movement. But it was odd of me saying that because I was a militant atheist. So like, I didn't know Jack from spirituality, but I just had that sense. I had this amazing experiences in the forest. I saw the, the fervor of some Islamic friends of mine who you know were not terrorists, but they just, they had this amazing transformations through Islam. I was not interested in Islam, um, but, uh, at any rate, so I, I then spend the next 25, 30 years of my life trying to prove myself wrong. And then after the congressional race and after writing this book, I'm like, you know what? I think I was right at 19. And so I am trying to create a movement that has three parts to it uh, or three elements. And one is personal transformation because all my friends on the left are super fucking angry. Um, the people, my family who's on the right, they're all fearful. Um, we, you know, pe people on the left are just as likely to get divorced and have problems with their, their spouses and their kids and depression and all of that as people on the right. It's a human condition. We need some personal transformation, but all the personal transformation movements are apolitical and most of them aren't really spiritual either. So that's one element. 
combined with a spiritual community. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment, but I have this thing I call the great connection. It's the, it's the force and energy that binds all of us together, that makes us want to love each other and take care of each other and educate each other. And so I am practicing this with my farm and the people who are involved. And then the third part is the pro-democracy movement. And because for me, it's like, we can't fix, quote unquote, fix America and think, all right, we've done a great job. You know, our, our work is done. No, there are billions of people who live under oppressive governments. And some of those oppressive governments are on the right wing and some of them are on the left wing. And what we need is real democracy. And there, you know, there might be evolutions and stages of democracy from representational to um, direct to anarchy for all I know um, at the end, but uh, we need more democracy. And so this idea for Behind Five Journeys is that they're um, uh, to combine these three elements. The number five just comes from the kind of the, the program um, uh, the education program that we put people through um, and focus on five different parts of our lives that will make us activists, that will um, help in, uh, create a, um, a sense of uh, inner peace and um, kind of a calmness of the spirit that will help create harmonious relationships, help us achieve our highest self and help us create community and find a place where we all belong. And so that's the idea behind Five Journeys. So at this point, I'm like off of politics, other than the pro-democracy aspect of it, um, and being in solidarity with the peoples from all over the world, um, because it's not good enough to worry about what's happening in Washington, D.C. or Sacramento or downtown L.A. You know, we are all humans who have a fundamental right and a need to just live our lives free of oppressive governments and the consolidation of wealth and power that drives the anti-democracy movement throughout the ages, throughout the history, throughout cultures, throughout countries. I think if we uh, fix a lot of things here, that some of that goes away overseas, actually, too. Some of it. Some you of know, it. To some, some of I it. mean... As far as historical involvement by the U.S., the intelligence agencies and everything like that, if there was another push like back in the 60s and 70s against the CIA and FBI, I think we'd yeah. be having a serious discussion about both the tearing apart of domestic social movements and the manipulation of social movements abroad. Agreed. You know? And that's... I think some of the stuff I'm calling for is probably not that different than, you know, like Students for a Democratic Society, you know, the Port Huron statement mm -hmm. uh, from uh, 65. Tom Hayden was a friend of mine before he uh, passed. And, you know, I, I, I can see um, that what I'm trying to create is nothing new. I'm just like looking around and seeing, God, there's not much of this going on right now, kind of combining these elements. And I, I want to, but, but the, but to more to respond to your comment, the problem is, let's just say the CIA went away. Let's just say that corporate America calmed the F down um, and uh, wasn't trying to control, you know, everyone in the world through Facebook and, and the such. The problem is you still have the Chinese Communist Party. You still have the Saudi Arabian government. You still have Putin and the Russian oligarch. You've got Erdogan in Turkey. You've got, you know, um, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil. It, there is always a drive in every country having nothing to do with the CIA for the people of that country, a small group to consolidate wealth and power into their hands. And the Saudi Arabian royal family uses mm -hmm. Islam, uses you know uh, Sunni Islam as their tool. Um, Russia uses the national pride, the Christian Orthodox Church. Um, obviously, they used to use communism. Um, the Chinese Communist Party uses communism and, you know, uh, uh, the inevitability of China controlling the world. Uh, but every country uses a different tool. I mean, look, I don't know how you guys feel about Nicaragua, but Daniel Ortega is a brutal dictator and he never was on the side of the people. The Sandinistas were taken over by him after they won the revolution and he assassinated many of the, the true community leaders of the Sandinistas. That is the type of consolidation of wealth and power. He has consolidated wealth and power. He's super rich guy um, over his hands over the last 20 years. He is no friend of the people. You know, the Sandinistas in, in initially certainly were. I mean, that was a righteous 
group trying to overthrow the CIA-backed um, regime in Nicaragua and, um, and using the Contras as a proxy to do that. But Daniel Ortega is no better than the dictator they had before him. And so that's the problem, that um, it's, not, it's not capitalism versus socialism. That's the wrong debate. It is democracy versus consolidation of wealth and power. And it, that's why it's not Christianity versus Islam, because you can have fascist Christian regimes, you could have fascist uh, Saudi uh, uh, Muslim regimes. You, and, and in fact, here's the crazy thing. Um, some of the most brutal countries in the world are Buddhists, right? Like you would right. think the, the, the way of living that is most peaceful of any of the major religions, and they are some of the most brutal countries in the world. And again, it has nothing to do with Buddhism or religion or economic policy. It's consolidation of wealth and power. Yeah, I, you know, I won't go too far into this, but I would say I, I, I won't dive into China at all. But Nicaragua, again, I, I, a history of U.S. meddling leads parties to react in a strange way. Meddling in, you know, mild land reform leads people to parties to react in a strange way. And as far as Saudi Arabia goes, I mean, I don't know that that kingdom would hold up too well without the U.S. giving it everything it needs to suppress its population you know yeah. um there again it's Maybe. just there's a debate to be had where it's it is there's a heavy hand result from the u.s and imperial wars in the middle east look what they've done you know great i'm but, i'm i'm but, not but we will, yeah we won't go into that um so i guess we'll kind of let you go here um did you want to your website for five journeys is the number five journeys.org um that's right your book, did you want to go ahead and say the name of your book again? Sure. sure. And where to last, find it. <laughs> last Chance to Save American Democracy. You know, it's in the independent booksellers. So I would definitely encourage people to go there first yeah. and open an account if you don't have that. Um, obviously, it's also on Amazon and, you know, I'm sure Barnes and Noble and stuff like that. Uh, certainly, it's well loved on Amazon uh, for reasons I, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't get that many reviews in the independent circles. And I guess that just shows the because ex- I keep promoting buying it on independent channels. But I guess that just shows the power of Amazon that despite my promotion, I think even you know friends and family of mine have bought it on Amazon because it's just so easy to buy it on Amazon and it comes the next day or um, or goes onto your Kindle three minutes later. But yeah, last chance to save American democracy. And what I try to do there is explain you know, all of the stuff we've talked about, kind of the history going back to, you know, why did the Republicans do this or the, the Republican elite in 2010? And it was a reaction to, you know, basically a black man winning um, on a coalition of progressive groups that were united under his banner. I mean, he certainly didn't do much for them, but, but you know, a good man uh, to, to, to some extent, but, you know, he was not much different than any of the previous presidents we had prior to him, um, uh, can be argued certainly policy-wise. And, but, but for the Republican elite, it's like Democrats were talking about taxation. I actually write in the book exactly the moment that everything changed, and that was when the Republicans were trying to restore a tax that um, uh, Bush had um, was able to rescind, uh, had rescinded for the wealthy. Um, it, it was both the estate tax and something else. And that's when it was just like the, the Republican elite had enough. They saw the writing on the walls. Oh my God, they're gonna take a couple more percent of our wealth. That is not acceptable. And that's what started this whole thing. And um, so, yeah. And, and then in, in the book, I talk about democracy and then I talk about what are the actual solutions. And in terms of you know policy, I, you know, I'm different like than your typical, I mean, I'm not totally a Democrat, but I'm typical than your Democratic, uh, different than your typical Democratic pundit. Like, you know, the idea that we're going to have a constitutional amendment to overthrow Citizens United is just, it's just foolish. And anybody advocating for that, any group is just doing that to fundraise. There is zero chance we're going to get a constitutional amendment passed by two thirds of the states in, uh, to overturn it. But we don't need to. In fact, Citizens United is the best thing that we could possibly happen to us if we use it right. And the way you use it is every dollar of contribution over $100 has a levy of 50 cents. And you take that 50 cents and you give that to American citizens or American voters to use as they want in their political campaigns, which immediately creates a massive disincentive to give huge contributions because half your money is probably going to go you know, to 
people and groups you don't want, but it would actually, you know, I think revive democracy because, you know, every year you're going to be given like a 40 or $50 voucher that you get to give to the Green Party or the Socialist Party or, I don't know, the Boogaloo Brothers, whatever. And I don't think that you know, Facebook and Google and um, Halliburton are going to want their money spent that way. And so I think you'll see a lot less money in American politics if we used um, Citizens United. And I go through the constitutionality of the law and like it's it's bulletproof. But of course, then I have the caveat, if the Republican Supreme Court uh, gets it, they'll just reverse all of the law that they had passed and say that it is unconstitutional, which is why you know, uh, changing Citizens United is the fifth solution. You have to do the other four first before you can get to it. Yeah, um, I have only, you know, gone through some of it because this was set up so quickly, but I will definitely be finishing it. And uh, yeah, thank you again for coming on. Uh, Haven McVarish, and I would definitely uh, recommend from what I've read so far, check out the book. Uh, thanks. And, and Jim and Jake, if you're ever in LA, um, you know, you got to come to the farm. It, we're, it's a permaculture farm. We're practicing soil regeneration. Um, it's, it's just a startup. It's co-opt. So the volunteers own it. Um, and my wife and I were able to buy the land, but, you know, we've just decided to open up ownership to, it's like kind of like REI, right? You, you volunteer and you become an owner. Um, so you're most welcome to come to the farm uh, and uh, have some fun there. Great. Like, Thank you. I like farms and <laughs> Um, perfect good points man your uh, people should read your book for sure i agree with you on a lot of your points yeah thanks and and i really appreciate what you guys are trying to do it must feel like a voice in the wilderness right now but you know you, you're gonna have that breakthrough i think um and uh, uh i just i've really enjoyed listening to your diverse guests and and to you guys as well great thank you yeah I, I... Given to the dogs, took the children's bread. And give it to the dogs, yeah. Took the children's bread, and then give it to the dogs. Making so many people's lives so hard. So that was that, and that was interesting. And uh, he definitely gave us a very comprehensive uh, outline of his book. Um, but you know, it's hard to write a book. So I imagine he wants to talk about it, but yeah, I mean, he, he is a lot of point. I actually uh, agreed with quite a bit of what he said, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, particularly just the, the nature of, of right-wing extremism. Yeah. I'm just perpetually blown away at the gaslighting and the, uh, min the minimizing of it among uh, the alt-left, Twitter alt-left, people like Glenn Greenwald and Aaron Maté and Jimmy Dore, who are just seemingly obsessed with, with downplaying right-wing extremism, even though uh, the vast majority, if not all, of uh, politically motivated extremist murders since 1994 have virtually all been right-wing, like three over 300, pretty much all right-wing violence. So this obsession with the violence of Antifa is just ridiculous, you know? But anyway. Well, I don't I think that I have one disagreement with all this, isn't that like the base and its leadership do not want the same thing. You know what I mean? Like the GOP does not give a shit like what the QAnon people actually want. You know, some do, Marjorie Taylor Greene maybe. Um but for the most part, they don't give a shit what like the far right wants. You know, look at Trump. It was just follow like McConnell's lead on tax cuts. And, you know, we talked about judges and shit in the episode and in interview. Um, no, McConnell but at the same time, like, well, hang on. I mean, finish my thought while I have it. <laughs> uh, so, but I think the problem with like the far right is like they'll just tear like the fabric of society apart. You know what I mean? They'll accelerate whatever fucking collapse we're headed to anyway. Well, yeah, I agree. I mean, and I mean, McConnell used Trump like a Trojan horse uh, as a as a, a power move to grab as many federal judiciary seats as possible. I mean, like you said, and he said, which is correct, that the main legacy of McConnell's years is going to be the way he stacked the the, the courts, and not even just the Supreme yeah. Court. 
I mean, he did do that, but but the federal judge judges that, uh, but. Well and 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 so he used trump as a trojan horse but what he didn't realize is it was a, a two-headed trojan horse like what came out of this maga movement uh is 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 it's you know like pandora's box now like we trojan can, horse inside a trojan horse huh trojan horse inside a trojan horse yeah trojan horse inside a trojan horse i like that yeah and we can never stop this now i mean it's 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 basically like we he, they just propped up this insane like white nationalist underbelly that for decades thought that they didn't have a place and now all of a sudden they feel totally emboldened to say what they want which is constitutionally okay but then also to now do what they want and yeah it's, it's not it's gonna get worse before it gets better but we're a week out now i think like uh last week's rally trump rally in alabama prove that they're already moving past like listening to him you know what i mean like they were yeah. booing him when he told them to get the vaccine yeah so like look it doesn't matter like it's not even what he speaks like goes into reality now it's like no they're busy they're writing their own man like you can't just appear once a week bro you have yeah. to be on tv 24 7 or they'll just go off on their own that's how like wayfair started that your queue was silent you know Right. Though so I, I they go nuts on their own. I, I do think Trump will not only run, but I, I think he will win. And I, I think he'll be president. Again. And I'll just go on record now saying that um, I, I, I see it happening. And maybe I'll go into it on another show. But I, I think we're going to have a Trump 2020. We'll have a Trump too. And uh, yeah, probably. But anyway, so future shows coming up. Yeah, uh, we've it's both of us are busy bees, so we haven't exactly gotten all the guests we, we want, but you know, we're still working on, you know, the one of the problems is it's, it's really hard to find people that are not so indoctrinated on one side that they're willing to talk freely about these things without going into hysteria mode. Um, and so, and that's what we try and do is, is, uh, you know, kind of really yeah. like a real no spin zone and it's it's hard to it's hard to find it because pretty much everyone is indoctrinated at this point um so but i don't know um, what do we have guests coming up and in, in the week of the fifth at least i know we have something on we're going to be talking about afghanistan wherever the hell it's at when we get the while well, we're there so we'll be talking about our new home when we get there the week of the fifth we're talking to um diplomacy coordinator for the state department for southern europe and the middle east um the i don't know chairman of the woodrow wilson center southeast europe project so this is john Satilities. so um yeah that we're gonna be talking to him about uh, Afghanistan, wherever the hell it's at at that time, you know, like I said, it, we it, will mark where we're at in a minute, but so we'll be talking to him about wider geopolitics too. Um, we have that at least coming up. All right. Um, but I don't know. Other than that, I'll find something. We'll work on it. We'll have people because we are kind of, you know, back. Yeah, more we're to come. I mean, left-wing politics or real left-wing ideology is more important to discuss now than ever because there's virtually no real representation of it in the American media ecosystem, so. No, and I don't know. There's a lot to talk about. A lot's happened, man. Um, Goodbye. Thank you. All right, this has been The Left is Dead. Um, I don't know, follow us on all the social media, fucking... Email us, the left is dead 420 gmail. Just I'll forward all the porn to Jake. Cool.